Hi, welcome to Movement. Two episodes ago. So when a city like Detroit calls you directly and says, hey, we want to really put our money on bikes and public transport as well, but uh, tell us what to do, and they commission a massive detailed document for how to do it, then you know that the paradigm is shifting. So it really is uh, an interesting time. We're seeing the bicycle returning uh, to cities all over the planet, and uh, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. That was Mikkel Colville-Anderson, designer and expert in urban cycling and mobility, in our October podcast interview about Copenhagenizing cities. Michael's episode was incredibly well received by our listeners and left many of us wanting to know more. So much so that Michael agreed to extend his appearance on movement and answer six questions from our audience. Thank you to all the people from all over the world who got in touch with us via email and on social. It proves that cycling in cities is back. Without further ado, Michael. Question number one. What are the most pragmatic or effective things campaigners or city voters can do to get better cycle infrastructure? And which policy changes can make the most difference? First of all, everyone needs to be on the same page. Often, different people working towards a common goal have different narratives and approaches. Understanding what best practice infrastructure is, is important. The question is from Anna in Zurich. And that city is far behind many other European cities. They try to squeeze the bicycle into the existing car-centric matrix. They even use their amazing public transport system as an excuse for not having room for cycling. Even though all the great cycling cities in the world are great public transport cities. They go hand in hand. Active campaigners and citizens need to know more than the city. Have the most information and the most data. Whoever has the most data in the city has the most power and the most influence. If that is the citizens, the city better watch out. If it's the city, then it generally turns out well for the citizens. But this is rarely the case. Switzerland has passed a law recently to prioritize bike infrastructure. And that sounds like really, really good news. But it won't matter much if the infrastructure is the same goofy designs that I've seen in so many Swiss cities. Question number two. What are those recurrent urban cycling myths you constantly have to debunk? Well, if I had one euro for every myth I had to debunk about cycling in cities, I'd be recording this from my private island in the Caribbean. Sadly, I am not. I have a whole chapter dedicated to this in my new book, Copenhagenized, the Definitive Guide to Global Bicycle Urbanism. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'll give you the top three. Number one is, we never used to cycle here. This isn't Copenhagen or Amsterdam. That's what you people have always done, but we never did it here. Oh, uh, yes, you did. The bicycle was a primary transport form in every city in the world for decades, until car-centric engineering ruined the party for everyone. I've explained this history about other cities to people who live there, which is kind of weird, explaining their own history to them. We're just going back to the future by putting the bicycle back in our cities. It's nothing new at all. The other one is, it's too hot here, or too cold, or too hilly. You know, climate and topography. For decades, people rode bikes. Heavy old bikes in heavy woolen clothing in the same cities as they do now. Now we have better bikes. We have lots of gears. Yeah, you think it's too hot? Then you can go to Seville. 
You can go to Mexico City, Barcelona, Rio. All of these cities are doing really amazing things for urban cycling. Seville went from 0.2% on bikes to 7% on bikes in only four years because they put in a massive infrastructure network. It's like 45 degrees in the summer in Seville. Okay, so it's too cold to cycle here. Then you can go to Montreal, Minneapolis, Oslo, the Finnish town of Oulu up by the Arctic Circle where 14% of the population cycle all winter. You can even go to Copenhagen in the winter. You can check out one of these blogs that I have called copenhagenvikingbiking.tumblr.com and you can see hundreds of winter cycling citizens in all of their frozen glory. It's really an effective tool when people talk about winter. I just send them to this blog. Then there's one I hear a lot. It's too hilly. People won't ride here. Well, then you can go to Oslo. Amazing things happening there. Putting the bicycle back as transport. Putting in the infrastructure despite their hills and despite their winter. You can go to Tokyo. Modal share in that city. That mega city is 15%. Uh, Barcelona has some nasty hills. San Francisco is one of the American cities to watch. Best practice infrastructure in a network eliminates weather and it levels topography. And remember, the people who usually say stuff like that, when they say, like, people won't ride here, they usually mean themselves. So that's also a little disclaimer we have to remember. But rest assured, there is easily 25% of the population in every city in the world who will ride once we give them the infrastructure they deserve. Number three is we don't have space for bikes. Yes, uh, you do. It's called streets. People who say this fail miserably in understanding that bicycles are transport and it's not something that we have to squeeze in to the existing transport paradigm. We can reallocate space, and I like to say redemocratize space to provide ample room for bikes. Something has to give, and that something's going to have to be the automobile in our cities. Cars are parked 96% of their lifetime. When they move around, they require an arrogant amount of space just to propel one person from A to B in our cities, and that space is usually public space, the streets. The street technically is all that space from facade to facade. In the history of every city, that space has been ever-changing, and it can be changed again. The sidewalks in New York in the 1920s were massive wide, but then they were narrowed to make space for cars. The streets are ours. We can do what we want with them. We need to change the question. So many different questions in our cities, but for 70 years, we've only asked one question about transport. In essence, how many cars can we fit down this street? Modern cities are now asking, how many people can we move down this street using all the cool stuff we've invented? We know that you can move 5,900 people per hour down a one-way best practice cycle track. We can move 50,000 a day on an effective bus line or tram line. A car lane can only move 1,300 cars per hour when flowing smoothly, which is rare. We need to do the math. We have the space. We just need to use it intelligently. Question number three. I live in Toronto. We are way behind for good bike or walking infrastructure despite local support uh, from residents, counselors, and growing concern as people get hurt or are killed. I'm part of a local bike advocacy group. Any tips for me, us, to push the city to do more. Well, Toronto has massive potential. If the city had elected Jennifer Keysmat on the 22nd of October 2018, my answer would have been, wait for it. Jennifer, she's got this. But, alas, that was not the case. Toronto has strong advocacy and activism, which is incredibly promising. In the Toronto episode of my urbanism TV series, The Life Size City, 
I was amazed by the high level of citizen engagement. I really, it's something I haven't seen in very many other places in the world. The key is, as mentioned before, to get more data than the city, to document the hell out of bike usage on key streets and in neighborhoods. Especially in a city with a huge disconnect between City Hall and the citizens like Toronto. No thanks to the amalgamation in the late 1990s. Using a lot of existing data about the benefits of cycling for a city and transferring them to the local context is another way of being the queens and kings of data. The people cycling daily in Copenhagen contribute 233 million euros a year in benefits to the public health. The city of Copenhagen has spent roughly 30 million euros a year over a decade on cycling infrastructure. I'm really bad at math, but that is the best business model in the history of transportation. Small investment, high return on investment. After the bike lane on Bloor Street in Toronto was put in, some people manipulated the data about travel times on the street. It was way slower for cars than projected. But as I understand it, a parallel street was under construction, sending motorists onto Bloor, which had nothing to do with the bike lane. Debunking those kind of uh, misconceptions is incredibly important. And you can do that through data. Another thing is that all advocates should be well armed with Photoshop. Talking is one thing, but rendering streets to show what they would look like with infrastructure completely changes the conversation. I've seen this all over the world. Amazing renderings advance the discussion. Show what the street would look like and uh, probably should look like. Question number four. You talk about the UK's macho spandex cycling zeitgeist in London, particularly, but also elsewhere in the UK. How do we square the circle created by the antics of red light busting macho cyclists competing with the same antics of the fast car boy racer macho motorist? First of all, that's just an amazing sentence. That was just really kind of fun to read. We need to make urban cycling as mundane and unremarkable as getting on the underground and thus remove the competition on the streets. How do we do that? And is the macho a particularly UK-centric thing? Okay. Captain Spandex and his merry band of testosterone warriors are not representatives of the 99%, the regular citizens who could be cycling. When I was working in Southwark in London, south of the river, that council spoke to me about how they saw these cycling speed demons as a hurdle to their plans to slow down their borough and create a cycling-friendly atmosphere. It's a tough nut to crack everywhere. It's not unique to the UK, but strangely, it seems to be unique to the Anglo-Saxon world from the UK to Australia via North America. Go figure. But the key would still be infrastructure, a comprehensive network of best practice cycle tracks. Again, nothing new. The first one was put in in London in 1930s, brings people out onto their bikes. The more representatives of the 99% that get cycling, the less influence the warriors have. Safety in numbers, but also a stronger image of cycling. People dressing for their destination, not their journey. You see spandex-clad cyclists in Copenhagen, sure, but they fade into the background behind all the suits, the high heels, the kids riding around, all the cargo bikes. We're planning our cities for who could be cycling, not the speed demons who are cycling now. Question number five. Hi. Hi. The town I live in, Oxford, is famous for its students on bikes, but it's actually not that easy to get around on a bike. Many of the streets are narrow, including the pavements and sidewalks. Wait, those are the same thing. Pavements and sidewalks. UK, US. Okay. And all forms of transport are competing with each other for space. Cyclists, pedestrians, buses, and cars. A lot of vehicular traffic has been prohibited from driving across the center, so at least in the central area, cyclists mostly just have to contend with buses, taxis, pedestrians. However, the central part of the town is overrun with tourists, bus stops, and shoppers, and buses that are oblivious to other road users, including when they cross the street. 
At certain times of day and locations, the sheer number of pedestrians means they are liable to step out into the roadway to get past each other. In a setting like this, how can cyclists coexist safely and efficiently with wayward pedestrians and buses? All right. What's interesting is that I hear conflicting opinions about cycling in Oxford. Some people say it's amazing. Others, like you, are frustrated by the tourists. And hey, every Copenhagener and Amsterdammer is nodding in agreement about the tourists. They're wandering around like drunk bumblebees onto our bicycle infrastructure and in our streets, and it's irritating. In peak season, I avoid the city center here in Copenhagen completely and take other routes home, trying to hack their luckily very predictive tourist system. They all have these same patterns and whatnot, so you kind of know where they're going to be and how they're going to act. At the end of the day, it's kind of a luxury problem to have, I would say. It mirrors every city in the world back in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s. Bikes and pedestrians coexisting or trying to. I would hazard a guess that most listeners uh, on this podcast would prefer to deal with confused tourists and some tourist buses lumbering along the streets than brain-dead motorists on their daily trajectories across their city. Question number six. What mechanisms, creative infrastructure design ideas have you come across that improve the cyclist experience without requiring huge disruption to a city's traffic? Now, I think I'd be the first person to say that I embrace disruption. It's exactly what we need to do. Disrupt the stagnant last century traffic in our cities. We need to fix our cities and improve the lives of our citizens, those that are there now and also future generations. In doing so, when we're talking bikes, the disruption is only affecting motorists. We don't ask smokers to join us at the table when we're planning anti-smoking laws, so I don't see why we need to ask motorists about our plans for more efficient transport that benefits our cities and our societies. Everything has been invented. A century of best practice infrastructure designs are right there, ready to be copy-pasted onto our streets in every city in the world. We know how to make intersections safer. It's all being invented. The best innovation I have seen involves technology supporting, kind of tweaking, existing designs. The green wave on all streets leading to Copenhagen city center, for example, it's just traffic lights coordinated for 20 kilometers per hour so that cyclists sail into the city and home again without ever having to stop or put a foot down. Regarding the speed demons I mentioned earlier, this slows them down as well because they see the advantage of not hitting red lights. Kind of traffic calms the whole bicycle rush hour in, in Copenhagen. Another thing is there are also sensors in Denmark and the Netherlands at places where bike paths cross streets. They register when it's cold or raining or snowing and give cyclists many more light cycles in order to get them home quicker. Pre-green traffic lights for bikes, giving them a head start off the light. Sensors that read cyclists approaching the light and keeping it green for them farther along. Things like that are in place and they're working. All copy-pastable. But let's not fear disruption. We need to act. People are dying. Health is failing. We need urban revolution not slow evolution. Thanks again to Michael Colville Anderson and the Copenhagen Ice team for their time and for encouraging so many people all over the world to invest in bikes and cities. Like he said, the paradigm is changing and we can't wait to see what the future holds for cycling in cities. This episode was recorded in Denmark and London in autumn 2018. Music was by Jazar. Hear more about Beryl and our mission to get more people in cities on bikes at beryl.cc and say hi on our social channels at WeAreBeryl. Until next time, I was your host, Thomas Slater.